left off in this chapter last week, and we were beginning to study the opening of the seals, the seven seals, and we started with the first four, which were the first four horsemen, and we saw the effects that they have on the world. You've got the one riding a white horse, he comes conquering, he's wearing a crown, he's got a bow. You've got the one on the bright uh, red horse who's going to take peace and he's going to cause war and all that type of stuff. The one on the black horse who brings famine and economic troubles. And then the one on the pale green horse, remember he looks like a zombie horse, is the color they use to describe corpses. Uh, He brings death to the earth. And we said that the opening of these seals is the birth pains of the end, right? In other words, the opening of these four seals marks the beginning of the end. And as we were concluding last week, we were saying that all of these horsemen and their effects that they bring on the earth, they are present now. And we see their effects all over the world now. And so when you begin to talk about the end and the end times, one of everybody's favorite subjects in the church is the end times. And when you start talking about that, where do people start looking? All right, they go to Revelation, fine. But then they want to say, okay, I want to make sense of it. So where do people start looking and trying to, you know, engage their mind in this idea, these thoughts about the end times? No one say John Hagee, okay? You're immediately dismissed if you say John Hagee. Okay, Daniel, that's one. Newspaper article, right? I guess no one reads the newspaper anymore. So you turn on what? You turn on the news and you start seeing all these things that are going on in the world and... You know, there are people who uh, will sit in front of the TV and they'll just watch the news for hours and hours and hours, and then they've got their Bible, and they're basically looking at the news and their Bible at the same time. They're going, well, here it is. You know, these are all the signs that the end has come, and they start looking for these markers. But if they can't find any, it's a common question for people to get concerned with timing, right? They want to know the exact timeline of events, do they not? A lot of people go to Google and they'll say, what's the timeline for the end times? And they find all these nice, neat little charts and stuff like that. And and they want to know, when is it going to happen? What's the mark that it's beginning? And when it starts taking too long, people begin to say, well, how long, Lord? When is all this going to go down? We know that you say it's going to go down, but when exactly is it going to go down? And here's what prompts that question even more. It's when people start looking at all the pain in the world, and they look at the suffering In the world, they look at death, they look at injustice that's going on in our country and all around the world, and they go, where are you, God? When are you going to get involved? If you are really there, why aren't you doing something? When are you going to do something? And they can start getting impatient. And these are all the issues that our passage this evening addresses. Our, Our passage this evening, it reminds us that God is not an unconcerned, uninterested bystander, but that he has not forgotten his people or his plans, that he is working all things according to his perfect timing. That we don't need to be paying attention to the news, wondering, okay, is this part of the timeline of events? Is this a marker of this? Is this according to this chapter or whatnot? None of that should be our concern. Jesus even told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, when they're like, hey, What's going to be the sign that all this is going to go down? Are you going to restore Israel now? Jesus said, why don't you not worry about that? Don't worry about all the events and how they're going to play out and all that kind of stuff. Why don't you go and spread the gospel? 
go and tell everybody about me and about what I'm doing. And that's what Jesus encourages us to do here. He says, yeah, look, here's a bunch of stuff that's going to happen, but you don't need to concern yourself with the timing. You need to focus on the fact that God has a plan and he's working all things according to his plan. And his plan is good. That when the end does finally come, it'll be a time of vindication for God's people and it will be a time of judgment on the rest of the world. So we're in this section, like I said, of the seven seals. The first four were the horsemen, but they are part of the seven seals. But this isn't the only series of seven in Revelation, is it? Anybody know of any other sevens in Revelation? Seven churches? Okay, yeah, that's one. Anybody else sevens in Revelation? Blessing? I don't know, maybe. Yeah, yeah, occurrences of the word blessing. I didn't know if you were following something. Gene, help us out here. Okay, well, give me the two that you're thinking of right now. Okay, Gene, deferring the answer. I know he knows this, but we also have seven trumpets. Yeah, sound familiar? Seven bowls of judgment or God's wrath. And actually, all of these happen one right after the other, right? You get the seven seals. Then you get the seven trumpets, and there's a little interlude there. And then you get the seven bowls of God's wrath. And one common thing, when people are reading Revelation, how do you read a book? This one's really easy. Easiest question I'll ask all night. How do you read a book? Usually front to back, right? And as you read it, what happens? The story progresses. And that's how people read Revelation. They start at the beginning. They go, okay, I'm going to read it all the way through to the end. And this is just a nice, neat little story that's just progressing all the way through. My question is, is that how Revelation works, though? Maybe I'm trying to trick you, Tina. (laughs) Okay. But that's how people often view these series of sevens, right? They are, in their minds, they think, and it could be. I'm not saying it's not yet. Let's just give me some time, Tina. Let me work up to it, all right? Some people will say, well, these are chronological events that have to happen in a certain sequence. First, you get all seven seals, and then you get all seven uh, trumpets, and then you get all seven bowls of God's wrath. Now, I am asking the question, but what do we think about that? Is that right? Is it wrong? Is it a yes? Is it a no? And if you're going to answer, I'm going to make you defend it because I don't want you to be like, well, you asked the question, so you must think it's this one. Let's defend the answer, okay? Does it happen chronologically? Is it sequential or is it something else? That's a good point, Doug. It's true. God's timing is... Something completely different, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What do y'all think? Seven uh, seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls? Is it sequential? Do do all the seals have to happen in order for the trumpets to start? Do all the trumpets have to blow in order for the bowls to be poured out? Okay. Yes, that's right. So 
That's right. Yeah, good answer. Anybody else want to contribute? Do we think chronological or something else? Man, we don't have anyone just wanting to put their foot down tonight. All right. See, here's a man who's willing to put his foot down. Doesn't matter. If he thinks he's right or wrong, he says, this is what I think, all right? Anybody else want to agree or disagree with our resident theologian and end times expert, Gene McKinney? Dr. Gene McKinney. All right, gentlemen, time to defend your position. What makes you think it's not chronological if we're reading it one thing after the other after the other? You turn the page, it's like, oh, it's this again. Yeah. Okay. Joseph, do you want to help him out? What makes you think it's not chronological? Ink bleeding through the paper. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So, yes. Okay, so, yeah, I would say that they are non-chronological, that they are cyclical. In other words, these are things that are going to continue to happen until the end. And as Tina pointed out, God is a God of order, and so there is an order. There's a pattern to things. And you can recognize this pattern with the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. For instance... The first five of whatever it is, the first five seals, first five trumpets or bowls, they are always things that are going to happen within human history. Right? These are all things that happen throughout human history. But then interestingly enough, when you get to the sixth one, the sixth thing, whatever it is, one of these, it always marks the end of human history. That is when everything comes crashing down and the earth starts melting away and things are falling from heaven and all this kind of stuff, very apocalyptic type stuff. It's the signal, this is the end. We're wrapping this thing up. And then the seventh thing always starts the final judgment every single time. And here's something else that's very interesting. If you want to just be a a Bible nerd like me and look for patterns, right? When you begin to go from six to seven, you can see that it'll start talking about the 144,000 who are redeemed. It starts talking about uh, the God's people who are redeemed, the people who were saved by the Lamb every single time. There's like always that mention of God's people before the final judgment. And so we need to recognize this pattern because we're in this section, and believe it or not, even though it still feels like we're pretty early on in Revelation, this is going to take us all the way to the end. 
I mean, this is going to take us all the way to the end of Revelation with the end of the bowls and the coming judgment and all that kind of stuff. But let's dive in a little bit and try to at least show, so we can get an idea, that things are not sequential or chronological as, as many believe that they are. It's fairly easy to prove. For instance, um, when the angel blows the third trumpet, Mazan, if you could put Revelation 8.10 on the screen. So if you want to write down the reference, Revelation 8.10 when the, third, when the angel blows the third trumpet, a star falls from heaven, and it poisons all rivers. Okay? Trumpet blows, star falls from heaven. Do what? Yeah, poisons the rivers, right? So then, when you look at uh, Revelation 6.13, Mazan, if you could put that reference on there. The sixth seal is open, which we're going to maybe cover tonight, probably not cover tonight, next week. But when the sixth seal is open, all the stars fall from the sky. Now, why would that matter? If the seals are open first, and they come before the trumpets, and the sixth seal says all stars fall from the sky, and then you come over here, and the third trumpet is blown, what happened? Do you remember? Something fell from the sky and poisoned rivers. A star. Well, if all the stars have already fallen, then how is there a star still left to fall and poison the rivers? doesn't make a lot of sense. Not only that, another reference, Mazan 8-7, when the first trumpet is blown, the Bible says that the green grass, all the green grass is burned up. But then, when the fifth trumpet is blown, in Revelation 9-4, the Bible specifically says that the locusts, do not harm the grass. Well, why would you say that if there's no grass to harm in the first place? If all the grass is already gone, you could just say locusts came. The fact that you have to mention that the locusts are not going to harm the grass implies what? That there is grass to be harmed. And so, therefore, you can see that as we study Revelation, and remember, it's going to take us from here, chapter 6, all the way to chapter 19 and 20, these things that people think happen chronologically and they're looking in the news and the newspapers and everything for and say, okay, that's a sign of the times, that's this, that's this, that's that. That means we must be pretty close to the end of Revelation. When in reality, these things happen all the time. They are cyclical. You see these patterns going on and on and on and these events and things happening all throughout human history. Now you might be thinking, well, pastor, I don't remember a star falling from the sky and poisoning a third of the rivers. How about you explain that? And to that, I say, we'll get there in a couple weeks, probably. Might be a month or so. I don't know. Our, our timing is real weird. It took us two years to get through Genesis. So, but the point is, we can explain that. We will explain that when we get there. But I just want you to understand that when we are studying these and we're going through these, these are, there's a pattern here. It's cyclical. And the way that you can understand these best is not that these are necessarily separate things that are happening and they're all sorts of just not related at all. But a better way to understand these is that they are all describing the same events from a different perspective. Right, that's how the gospel writers write too, right? People will look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and they'll say, you know, Matthew said this, but Mark said this. What's going on here? Like, uh, we just talked about Jesus freeing the men of demons, right? And Matthew says there were two. And Mark says there's one. And people go, well, there's a contradiction right there. Well, no, it's not a contradiction. Mark just focuses on one. 
Matthew focuses on too. Not a big deal at all, you know. There's not a contradiction there. It's just that their, their focus is different. You look at the same thing all throughout. Matthew, he orders his gospel thematically. He always has, hey, here's this big idea that Jesus was teaching on. And oh, by the way, here are some things that he did that demonstrated that big idea. Luke was a medical doctor and a historian. That man is as black and white as it gets. Everything is chronological and sequential, and this is the order that it definitely happened in because I'm Luke, and I recorded it, and I'm a historian. There you go. But are they recording different events? No. They're just recording the same events from different perspectives. Or another way to think about it, let's say that I was leaving here tonight, and I pull out in the road, and I get in a terrible car accident, and all of you are on the stairs, and you witness it happen. Cops arrive on scene, and they say, what happened? You're going to tell him what you saw. Alex pulled out of here. Something went down. He hit a car. A car hit him. Big It rolled, blah, 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 blah. But if he asked me to explain it, I'm going to have a different perspective. Or am I not? You're going to have a general one outside looking in. You can maybe take in more of the scene. Maybe I never even saw the car coming. I was saying, I don't know. I was driving one second. Next second, I'm upside down, and you guys are asking me what happened. I have no idea. You know, it was a bloody mess in here. And outside, you might say, well, I didn't see any blood, but it looked pretty bad. So all of these things are describing the same event, but from different perspectives. And that's what we need to understand. So all of these, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, they go together, and they are describing similar events or same events, but with different perspectives. I like the way that, that one theologian was describing this when he was uh, talking about the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, how he worked together. He said, the theme of the seven seals is God's restraint of judgment for the sake of the church. The seven trumpets, they announce the victory of God's judgment over the world. And the seven bowls depict the wrath of God's judgment upon the unbelieving world. And so we need to keep that in mind as we go through this passage and as we continue our study of Revelation so that we don't get confused and think that something hasn't happened yet or this or that. They work together. All right, so we're only going to get to the fifth seal tonight. Look with me, verses 9 through 10. With all that in mind, understanding that there's a pattern here and things 1 through 5 happen in human history, this is what we read. When he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, something interesting for you to know, all throughout the Bible there are two altars. Anybody know what those two altars are? Bible quiz of the night. The altar of burnt offerings. Very good. I heard it somewhere up here in the front. Yeah. And the altar of Yeah, yeah. Very good, Miss Vicky. All right. You couldn't get that? That was okay. The altar of burnt offering and the altar of incense. But throughout Revelation, there's only one altar. And it's interesting because they kind of combined the, the themes of sacrifice and prayer together. And so you see that here at this altar, and you see that there's some people who are under the altar and they're crying out to God. Is there anything weird about this? 
Anything strange? Anything that sticks out to you when you see these people in whatever kind of situation they're in? They're under the altar? Okay, the whole thing is strange. Welcome to the book of Revelation. Okay. Unexpected. All right. Uh, let's start with the first thing. Under the altar. What do we make of that? I probably wouldn't use those. Exa- I don't know that if that's the reference, but that was a good try. I like it. Could be. It doesn't say. Yeah, I think so, probably. Same idea. So when we're picturing this, we don't need to be picturing like a giant altar with, I've seen statues of this actually and paintings of this, a giant altar and there's a whole bunch of people who are like trying to crawl out of the altar and they're getting their head out and they're screaming and asking God, how long, oh Lord, and they're just kind of being crushed by the weight of this altar. We don't need to understand it like that at all. Actually, the way that it's written in the Greek um, basically just means that they are at the foot of the altar or kind of beneath the altar. You can imagine they're in the shadow of the altar. So, yeah, yeah. So, like, you have this giant altar, and they're at the very bottom, and they are said to be underneath the altar in that way. They're beneath it or at the foot of it. Basically, it's the idea that they are resting in the shadow of God's altar, and they are resting in his protection. And so here's my question. Who are these people? We said, uh, you said Stephen, martyrs, martyrs. All in agreement, martyrs. Very interesting question, Tina. Are they part of the 144,000? <laughs> All right, Gene, that's strike one, two more. And we're out in 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Tina, you'll have to wait until Revelation 7, whenever we get there, for the 144,000. But that is an interesting question. Are they part of them? Very interesting. Uh, we'll address that later. But martyrs, are we all in agreement? We think martyrs, that's the answer. Okay. Why use that word? What's a martyr? Died defending the gospel. Because of their faith? Justin. Justin Martyr. Church history reference. Okay. Very good, Joseph. Um, anybody know what the Greek word martyr means? I'm going to put it right here. It has nothing to do with any of this, but it's the only white I have on the board. Greek word martyr just means witness. So this is what we have here. Interesting, sometimes the Bible does this, where you have a word either in Hebrew or in Greek or Aramaic, and the translators are like, I'm not going to translate it. I'm going to transliterate it, which is basically you take something from uh, the letters in one language, and you basically try to find equivalents in your own. So you read the Greek word martyr, and guess what it is in English? Martyr. That's, that's a transliteration. That's how that works, okay? So they decided not to translate it. And so 
then the word witness became associated with people who were dying for their faith because they were witnessing to others. They were sharing their faith. And so what do you call them if you're Greek-speaking people? Hey, what happened to that witness? He died. Oh, he's a martyr because he was a witness. And so that's actually who is here under the shadow of God's altar. It's a, a group of people. They're called martyrs in the Greek. It's just witnesses. They are witnesses for Jesus. But... Should we believe that there are many people here who actually were killed for their faith? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're going to go on and actually say that some of them did, in fact, die for their faith. They were killed for their faith. But I think it's more appropriate to understand this group under the altar as being representative of all Christians who are persecuted for their faith. They are all witnesses for Jesus. They have borne witness to Jesus and to his gospel. I mean, Jesus in Matthew 24 said that all believers would be persecuted for their commitment to the church. We talked about this last week, that, that Christians are the single most persecuted group throughout all of human history, or at least for the past 2,000 years, we have been the single most persecuted group on earth. There have been more Christian martyrs in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries combined. And so Jesus's words, of course, ring true that all Christians are persecuted to some degree for their faith. They will bear persecution for their faith. They will suffer persecution. In other words, what Jesus is saying here, you have a picture of the church and he says it is a persecuted church. The church always has been and always will be. There are people who like to imagine this golden age where Christians in the church will never be persecuted and that's just not going to happen. Christians are never going to reach this, this state where there's no longer persecution, there's no longer suffering. They're always going to be a persecuted people. And, and so like Tina said, it's interesting. Notice what, what they're saying. They say, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, the reference, those who dwell on the earth in Revelation is just referring to who? evildoers, the wicked on the earth. So this isn't referring to all humanity without discrimination. This is the evildoers who are on earth, the wicked, those who are unbelievers, who have rejected Jesus and his gospel. And these Christians are wondering, how long? And that's interesting, is it not? I mean, because when we think about a Christian in heaven, we don't think about this kind of thing, do we? We always think about this blissful state that they're in. We always think about them just, you know, running down streets of gold and crystal seas and all this kind of stuff. And you never think about the, the multiple times in the Bible where we read about people like this who were crying out, saying, Oh, Lord, how long until you avenge us? Or you never think about people in heaven wanting anything, right? But doesn't the Bible say that we will be longing with anticipation for the resurrection and our resurrection bodies. And so there is some sort of longing still in heaven. And you see these human characteristics coming out. And Jesus, they're asking him how long because they've given their lives for him. Whether they were killed literally for their faith, whether it's a figurative, Lord, I was your witness, and yet I still suffered death on the earth and it's full of wickedness. So why are the wicked prospering and the righteous are suffering? How long until you do something about it? And don't we encounter people who ask that same question today? I mean, I, I've encountered people who have claimed to be Christians and something terrible happens in their life. I mean, horrible. And they say, 
Well, if God was so good, where was he in that situation? If your God is all-loving all and all-powerful and he can do something, then why doesn't he do something? Why did he allow that thing to happen to me? Why didn't he give me what I was asking for? I tried. I prayed. I begged him. I was doing everything that I thought I was supposed to do. And where was God in all of it? Because he was nowhere to be seen. Do we not still see people asking this question today? Where are you, God? How long? When are you going to show up and do something? And what do you think people want in that moment? Yeah, that's right. They want an answer. When they are begging God, where were you? How long? When is this all going to come to an end? When are you going to do something? They want an answer. Have you ever noticed something about God's answers? They're usually not the thing we were hoping to hear, right? And you see that all throughout the Bible. You see it especially in the Gospels with Jesus when they're asking Jesus about something. I mean, just think about his time with Pilate and everything. And Pilate's like, all right, look, I can let you off the hook, okay? You just got to come clean. Are you the king of the Jews? And he, what does Jesus say? You say I am. <laughs> Pilate's like pleaded with him. He's like, I can get you off. You don't have to go to the cross. Just tell me. Are you the king of the Jews? What's truth? And Jesus is just silent. <laughs> God's answers usually and very often are not the answers that we're actually wanting to hear in the moment. That's the same here. We'll, we'll get to verse 11 and then we'll, we'll end for the night. But notice what his response is. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So what does the white robe symbolize? Okay, purity. Purity of their faith. What else? You wash your robes white as snow. What does that typically mean? Yeah, forgiveness of sins. It's, it's also uh, the white we talked about last week with the, the first writer. <clears throat> White's the color of victory. And so it's a reference also to the victory that they have secured through the perseverance in the faith. And God tells them to rest a little longer until what time? When is the time? Yeah. That's right. Until the number... The full number, he says, the complete number. Until that number has been reached, I'm not doing, I'm not going, I'm not coming back, I'm not vindicating, I'm not pouring out wrath, I'm not judging, none of that until that full number is complete. So that tells us a few things, doesn't it? It tells us God knows exactly how many people are going to be killed for their faith. When you hear about a Christian who dies at the hands of someone because of their faith, you hear about Christian martyrs and first that is not a time to say, well, why didn't God step in and do anything? That's a time for you to remember God knows the complete number of those who will ultimately give their lives for their faith. That he knew it was going to happen before they were ever even born. It also tells us he knows how many Christians are going to die before Jesus returns. Is that number a mystery to him? Is God just waiting around? I mean, people have this idea, God's just waiting, and then one day he's just going to make the decision, okay, now I'll send Jesus back. Now, he's waiting for certain things to happen. And until the full number of Christians have come to faith, 
until the full number who are going to be killed for their faith actually reaches completion, until the full number who are going to be saved will be saved, God's not going to send Jesus back. That means God also knows how many people are ultimately going to come to salvation. And He has a plan. He has a good plan that's going to unfold in His perfect timing. And so He's encouraging people here to wait and rest in His protection and under His sovereign care. We'll get to this some next week, but I just want to let you know what His plan is here is that when He does ultimately send Jesus back, it's going to be a vindication of His people. It's going to be a justification of their faith. Not in the sense that He's going to declare them to be righteous, but their faith is going to be justified in the sense that He is going to show the entire world their faith was not in vain. They weren't believing a myth or a fairy tale or anything like that. They knew me, I knew them, and they were my people. I am coming back to show you that I am real, and you should have listened. Because when that time comes, not only is it a time of vindication for God's people, it is a time of judgment upon the world, and there is no escaping that. We get into that next week, some about there is no escape, but the hope for us as Christians, when we are growing weary in our faith, when we are asking those questions about where are you, God? How long, God? When will you get involved, God? When are you going to do something, God? The encouragement for us is to remember that God always has a plan, that He is always working that plan, that His plan is perfect and good, and it will come to pass. And there is not a thing that you or anyone else or this entire world can do to stop the plan of God from unfolding. He is coming back. And he will vindicate his people. And all of our despair, all of our struggles, all of our suffering, all of the mocking and persecution that we have endured, they are going to be shown to be justified for the sake of Christ. Because he comes back and he says, these are my people and I am here for them. And for the rest of the world, they suffer the wrath and the judgment of God. And that's a scary thing to suffer. So we'll get into that next week. But about our youngest person here, rather than our oldest, give our word of wisdom for the night. That's you, Joseph. Okay. <laughs>